1: Hello, Naushin. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. How are you?
1: Very good, Naushin. Thank you so much for your time uh, on New Books Network. As I was saying right before uh, we went sort of uh, live that this uh, book was such a pleasure to read. It's about a uh, really important topic that not many of us know much about. And it's such a lyrically written book uh, with some very important and interdisciplinary Uh, conceptual uh, arguments and I really look forward to this conversation. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Uh, We have a tradition on the New Books Network, Nausheen, that our first question is always uh, biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our uh, listeners uh, A, how did you become a scholar of uh, South Asia, Muslim societies, and then if I could add along uh, that question, how did you get to write this uh, particular book?
0: Okay, where to start? Um, I think uh, it was in 2003 when i was doing a course on environmental history at cornell university during my masters and phd program and uh, i was looking at the kunjarab national park i was interested in questions of the environment and it was at that moment that you know for the context part of your of your thesis or your chapter uh, you google fana which is federally administered northern areas and you realize then that it's part of disputed kashmir it's been denied a political identity and rights um so i was pretty shocked at how much northern areas has been had been invisibilized in national discourse in pakistan now this is a region where i had already visited thrice uh, as a tourist as an ngo person studying the environment but The denial of political identity uh, was so deep that um, I had no clue uh, about what was happening, and I was confused and shocked. I thought it was just me. I was clueless, and then I talked to my Gilgiti friends. I talked to several Pakistani friends, and it turned out that beyond the beautiful mountains of Gilgit, you know, K2, Nanga Parbat, which we had read in school. the region had just remained unseen in national discourse, and that was partly by design, partly because of the structural indeterminacy of the region itself. So, my journey began. Um, it it began to address this uh, address the question of national consciousness and how the tourist imaginary towards northern areas becomes the only way uh, for for people in Pakistan to apprehend uh, northern areas and how violent was that. So I got interested in the constitutional status and dilemma that the region was in. Then I started uh, going to the region every year. Then the poetry and ecology and sectarianism, all of that then built, built up. But it started with the invisibility of its political status in my own imagination.
1: Perfect. So before we get to the specific chapters, Anoshin, let's perhaps begin with the broader architecture and the theme of the book. Um, I know there are so many different uh, sort of uh, threads that connect this book, but if I were to ask you to sort of sum up what you would say as the sort of central take-home point that you want readers to take from this book, I was wondering if you could describe that and if I could add a couple of things to that. I mean, the book title is Delusional States, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what that means. And one of the things that I found really fascinating throughout the book and uh, issue that you really uh, delineate in the introduction also is this very interesting interplay that you talk about uh, between love and betrayal that sustains a relationship between citizens and the state uh, and uh, the different modalities of love and affect that that connects uh, this relationship. Uh, so I was wondering if you could also uh, shed some light on this uh, thematic as part of your answer. mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are several central arguments of the book. I kind of resist this dominant Western academic mode in which you basically have to figure out this central narrative or, you know, narrow down the multiple layers you've spent such a long time articulating. Um, but I will try. I think I was primarily concerned with the nature of the Pakistani state in Gilgit-Baltistan and what that tells us about the late modern state under the war on terror. So that was one of the first um, interests, theoretical interests of mine. Then, of course, I want to understand political and social subjectivity in the region and how that has been impacted by processes of state making. And these processes of state making range from representation to militarism, to sectarianization, to biodiversity converse- uh, conservation. So I look at a huge range of state making processes uh, to articulate the relationship between the state and citizen uh, in Gilgit-Baltistan, the what the poetics of love uh, does to un- to make to help us understand political subjectivity and what I call social emo- emotionality in the region is um, is something that really captivated me. So I would go to a protest in. Uh, Islamabad or in Gilgit on political rights of Gilgit-Baltistan, and uh, you know the refrain would be Pakistan ne humare aisa saath ke saath khela, you know, which means Pakistan has manipulated our emotions or it has played with our emotions. Very often the conversation on citizenship would be very emotional and would be filled with conversations about, you know, we have loved the state but it has betrayed us, bevafai, dhoka. uh, we are the most loyal citizens and look what we get in return, a treacherous state that constantly suspects us. So that kind of emotional logic of rule um, and resistance was something that really stunned me. And I, my political sociology training uh, had not equipped me with the necessary intellectual tools to apprehend that. So that's why I looked to... um, you know, I look to love, uh, not not love, uh, I mean, the poetics of love, political love, uh, as a way to understand how are people capturing what regression means beyond a denial of political status and disenfranchisement. Um, beyond that, the title of the book that you asked about, Delusional States. So I think once you start looking at the state through an emotional lens, uh, I found the work of Anne McClintock uh, very useful. She writes about the paranoid empire and the US state in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo actually. And she talks about this double dynamic of uh, delusions of grandeur coexisting with um, a permanent state of engulfment and threat. And she talks about how the US is uh is, is facing and is uh embodied by catastrophic self-delusion in these shadowlands of empire, these extraordinary prisons. And it struck me that Pakistan, since the Cold War, has been a shadowland of empire. It's not just these um, extraordinary prisons. And the dynamic of grandeur, omnipotence, these false beliefs, plus this insecure state, this notion that everybody is a traitor and everybody is suspect, Actually, what it does is that it is used to justify uh, regimes of surveillance, regi- regimes of extraordinarily militarization of state and society, and it is from there that I got the central argument um, and framing of of delusional states.
1: So, continuing with this uh, thread, you know, as you mentioned that one of the key uh, aspects that really distinguish this book from, uh, I guess, not only other literature in Pakistan and the borderlands, but I think in in general is this focus on the state and the uh, focus on this question of emotion and affect. And you really also bring this into, in the first half of the book, when you talk about in precise detail the processes and mechanisms through which uh, the Gilgit-Baldistan region has seen the entrenchment of militarization. And again, you show the place and role of emotion and affect in bringing about and sustaining uh, this militarization. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, that part of um, your argument about how this... uh, entrenchment of militarization has taken place and perhaps you could also introduce to our listeners a bit the uh, uh, nationalist imaginaries of this region and then sort of the realities as you detail uh, in the in the book.
0: Yeah. Um, so as I was saying earlier, uh, the national discourse on Gilgit-Baltistan is centrally defined through the ecological lens, right? So we see this place uh, as an idyllic paradise. You see today movies being made in Gilgit-Baltistan that are glorifying its mountains, its glaciers. Um, But what that idyllic paradise, what this imaginary um, uh, invisibilizes is how the region is actually ruled like an internal security zone. Um, There is a proliferation of intelligence agencies um, that operate in the region um, and they use the... uh, idea that this is a borderland the idea that this is the only shia majority area of sunni dominated pakistan as an excuse according to my uh, informants as an excuse to uh, extensively surveil and and repress uh, movements for political rights um, in the region emotion is a very interesting way to understand this dynamic of militarism because you know i talk about loyalty suspicion and sacrifice uh, working together so Military wage labor goes back to the Gilgit Scouts. Goes back to the formation of the Gilgit Scouts in 1913. It's it's not just a post-colonial affect uh, to be loyal to the military. And if if every family has a soldier working for the Pakistani army or in the Pakistani armed uh, forces structure, and they are participating in operations like the Lal Masjid operation, like Waziristan, like Balochistan, like Kargil all of which uh, I highlight in the book, then shahadat or sacrifice uh, becomes the necessary emotion to honor uh, military sacrifices and loyalty. So on the one hand, you have this intense, uh, actually affection and pride in the military. But on the other hand, you have disdain for the intelligence structure run by the military, uh, which constantly suspects and surveils. Um, so this dynamic of loyalty and suspicion is very key to understanding how state rule operates in the region um, and but the the other part is um yeah I think i'll I'll just end there uh, when I'm talking about the role of emotion. I think it's also important to situate this in in the larger discourse on Kashmir um, and I'm, I'm struggling with how to explain that right now, but the way Kashmir is in both the Indian and Pakistani national imaginary as this beautiful place, and and yet it's a place that is terrorized on the ground. And I think that is another dynamic between beauty and terror that I wanted to highlight in the book. It's very hard to talk about it versus writing about it, so I'm struggling a little bit.
1: Uh, the next uh, couple of uh, chapters really focuses on, I think, the theme that... Uh, continues with this uh, narrative uh, and you talk about the theme of sectarianization of uh, the region and uh, specifically in the next chapter you talk about ways in which uh, state engineered interventions in education have contributed to the sectarianization of the region and you elaborate on this theme by focusing on a very interesting uh, what you call the textbook controversy in the early 2000s. So I was wondering Mm -hmm. through that example if you could speak a bit about uh, this relationship between education and the sectarianization of the region? And how does it highlight some broader issues of religious identity and state-citizen relationship, not only in gilgit baltistan but also beyond, perhaps, in Pakistan?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, the question of sectarianization in gilgit baltistan is linked to the question of militarization. And I investigate them as twin processes of state rule. Unfortunately, what since the 70s, what the delusional state in gilgit baltistan has done is that not only does it produce suspicious subjects, treacherous subjects that must constantly be surveilled, but it uh, also enables uh, a kind of sectarianization of society whereby particularly Shia and Sunni extremist groups have been uh, promoted directly by the military through Uh, what often is referred to in the region as a patron-client relationship. And this is something I go at uh, length in in the book. Um, Simultaneously, Pakistan has slowly seen uh, a Sunniization of its own state policies. And uh, the structure that I look at is the Punjab textbook board that has over the years come to be dominated by the Jamaat-e-Islami. And, you know, you have... Books on Islamiat. You have books on drawing. You have books on English. All of which have increasingly um, uh, portrayed a, a gradually Sunniizing uh, sentiment uh, in in these textbooks. Now, in Gilgit-Baltistan, between 2000 and 2005, we saw perhaps the biggest uh, Shia resistance and and civil rights movement. Uh, in in Pakistan, in Gilgit-Baltistan, before the current um, Hazara movement uh, of recent years, and it again, this movement was like the region itself uh, quite eclipsed in national discourse. We were having uh, a national conversation on textbooks and how the textbooks promote jihadi interpretations, how the textbooks promote uh, anti-Hindu sentiment, anti-women sentiment. But the the sectarian content of these textbooks was was not uh, a conversation in national discourse. At the same time, in Gilgit, Baltistan, this was what was creating curfews. The schools were closed for 11 months, more than 100 people died. So I look at why the textbooks become so critical in this place. And what I argue is that these uh, the, the sectarianization of education in Gilgit Baltistan offers a lens to understand larger questions of religion and citizenship in Pakistan. Because what the argument for a more representative Islamic curriculum in Pakistan extended to in Gilgit Baltistan was the demand for a separate textbook board and eventually for political rights of of Gilgit Baltistan. So um it's it's interesting to see uh that chapter on sectarianism not just specific to gilgit baltistan but but also as a lens on the larger politics of faith and education in in pakistan
1: now uh, continuing with this thread of uh, the formations of sectarian identities uh, you also show uh, and i think this was really a fascinating chapter i believe chapter 4 uh, alternate visions of uh, islam and you uh, highlight that by looking at examples of uh, Muslim identity and Islam as articulated through poetry and through what you call poetic publics, which I, I thought was a very interesting and instructive category. Perhaps you could speak a bit about that category. So by giving some examples, could you speak a bit about this um, um, part of your argument, how this sectarian landscape has been and continues to be resisted and countered through these alternate spaces or counter-publics um, uh, especially through uh, poetry and these poetic publics.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the fascinating things about Gilgiti social life is that people remember intersect ties as far more pluralistic uh, than they are today. And they also remember that this zeher of sectarianism, as they would often call it, poison or tasub, uh, sec- which is the word for sectarian prejudice. Uh, it it is not part of our local history. It has been sustained by uh, state practices, and it has come from the outside. So poetry, incidentally, was was nowhere in my uh, research project. Um, but once I was in Gilgit, uh, in my interviews, poetry would constantly come up. When I would ask about political rights, people would talk about siyasi mehrumia or or political dispossession in very profoundly emotional and poetic ways. And I think my attention to the poetic is is linked to the social poetics of love that uh, exist in the region, that exist also perhaps in ways that uh, today PTM is talking about the state. So you have in Pakistan and you have in South Asia um, cultures that are rooted in poetic sensibilities, And particularly in, in Muslim culture, we find poetry as a way to express um, uh, emotions that towards the state and towards politics in ways that uh, I think theory uh, has not sufficiently captured. So, you know, for example, I'd been in an interview and uh, one of the uh, poets, very famous poets, Jam- Jamshed Dukhi, would be quoted very often and I'll recite a verse. Uh, recite a verse. Um, se Um ra ye hai, Baha der Seam yehe, Muslimu kajab anjam yehe, mekafir hu agar Islam yehe. So it is a message overflowing with prejudice, shed blood is being commonly preached. When this is the meaning of being Muslim, I'm a non-believer if this is Islam. And these two lines, Muslimano kajab anjam kafir hu agar Islam yehe was a rejection of the military. Militant alliance. It was a rejection of the politicization of religious identity in Pakistan. It was a rejection of um, the kind of calculated disorder that sectarianism was being used to perpetuate in the region as a way to erase struggles for political self determination. I think that is very key. People were very aware that these are divide and conquer strategies that are designed to. Betray uh, the yearning for a Muslim nation. This that this um, land uh, expressed at the time of partition. We know that Gilgit-Baltistan is the only part that actually fought a war uh, to say no to uh, Hindu-dominated Kashmir or India and say no. We are yearning for for a Muslim nation. So these betrayed um, expectations uh, are are very effectively evoked. At the same time, as they critique um, uh, what has become of Muslim ethics in this in this supposedly Muslim nation, so po- poetic public is is some is uh, is a useful term for us to capture how poetry is not just an you know this individual isolated someone is writing over a lake like like in Western poetry, but it's actually a, a community production. That, you know, the Mushairas that I attended in Gilgate would last for three, four hours. They would be attended by 400 people, all men, by the way. Uh, it's very important to highlight the gendered aspect as well. But they nevertheless cultivated a space for transcending sectarian divides. And also the poets themselves, I interviewed um, a lot of poets. And as I detail in the book, they saw their work as using literature for creating peace and for creating an alternative to the sectarianization of society and education that they were seeing all around.
1: So Let's shift uh, focus to the other key theme that you bring up uh, in the book, which is the whole question of uh, nature uh, conservation and environmental development. Um, as part of that notion, I was wondering first if you could give listeners an introduction to uh, the village of Sh- Shimshal, which is one of the major sites on which the book focuses, Other one, of course, being um, the city of Gilgit. And you talk about, um, this is chapter five, how these uh, projects of nature conservation and environmental development uh, have uh, tried to instrumentalize and appropriate land and territory in Shimshal, but then how the local peasants and pastoralists have resisted such projects. Uh, So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about um, uh, these processes uh, while also introducing this uh, uh, location on which uh, the book partly focuses.
0: Yes. Um, Shimshal is uh, an agro-pastoral village of around 1,700 people. It is an Ismaili village located in Upper Hunza. And it formed the second site of my research. The primary site of my research was the city of Gilgit. Um, I looked at conservation projects. As I told you earlier, the interest in environmental history was how I uh, started my research on Gilgit-Baltistan and what i found fascinating is that you know the discourse on gilgit baltistan as well as the larger discourse on kashmir was so centrally defined by a security lens by the conversation on on political rights right um but ecology uh, and since as i detailed earlier nature was such a central imaginary through which the pakistani state and pakistani citizens apprehend uh, this region nature was also, something that I wanted to attend to uh, in terms of on-the-ground uh, practices of state-led development. So, over forty percent of um, uh, land in Gilgit-Baltistan today is has been converted into some form of national park or community-based conservation area. Now, we find on the other side of Kashmir as well um, that land and forests and ecology has become a, a, a terrain for the state to perpetuate its its politics of rule through ways other than what is usually getting attention right so i wanted to look at how the kunjurap national park particularly but also uh, these recently introduced uh, community based hunting areas or community controlled hunting as it is called as forms of both neoliberal projects but also state forms of territorializing a disputed territory right so just two weeks ago you videos were coming out from gilgit where uh, with where protests were taking uh, place against the army so there are lots of actors there are development actors there are state actors uh, that work together um, to uh, occupy land and there are many modalities of occupying land So what this chapter on Shimshal details is how conservation discourse, discourse on biodiversity conservation has these tropes of uh, livelihood uh, uh, versus wildlife, uh, livestock versus wildlife and uh, capacity building of of local villagers on conservation because presumably these locals know nothing about conservation that are resisted by uh, Shimshalis who live in a global biodiversity hotspot with Mark Hors and Ibex and, and then they ask back to this conservation discourse, to the state discourse, well, you know, how do we how come we don't know anything about conservation if we have such a an amazingly biodiverse area so far and, and your places don't? Clearly we know something about conservation. And maybe we should be determining the, the terms of this relation and the state should be participating instead of Uh, community participation, which is the usual mantra in development discourse. So my interest in Shimshal, um, I mean, I was pretty struck by their notions of environmental stewardship and how savvy they were in actually upturning development discourses and how they reduce agro-pastoral communities to these primordial jungly people who, who must be trained, who must be, actually, who must be resisted and they are the threat to nature. They are the threat to these lands. According to Shimshalis, of course, the threat to land is the global conservation discourse, which doesn't understand that pastoralism is not a threat to nature. It's not a threat to wildlife, but that it has always, uh, that kudrat uh, or nature has complementary relationships, which the locals who have been managing biodiversity for a long time, for a thousand years, understand far better then international conservation agencies or state agencies. So that's the dynamic of resistance that I wanted to put forward, also because, like the poetic and faith-based movements we discussed, um, these ecological movements are rarely thought of as, as one that also enables us to rethink the question of sovereignty. So, To me, they were talking about ecological sovereignty and the connection between political and environmental justice in very interesting ways. Uh, So I wanted to uh, bring attention to that.
1: Now, in the final uh, chapter of the book, uh, uh, you uh, talk about one other major theme of the book that, uh, again, is a very distinctive marker of uh, this project is the way it connects these regimes of internal colonialism in uh, regions of South Asia, like Gilgit-Baldistan, with the larger context of U.S. imperialism. Um, And this last chapter really brings that uh, theme, which runs throughout the book, but this one really brings it into sharp focus. And you talk about uh, this controversial 2007 book, uh, Three Cups of Tea, and through that uh, you elaborate this category of um, what you call the discourse of humanitarian empire. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what uh, this category entails, the discourse of humanitarian empire, and then connect it to this larger argument of how uh, U.S. imperialism is inextricable to these um, orders of internal colonialism in sites such as uh, uh, Gilgit Baldassar.
0: You know, uh, what's really interesting, uh, I'll I'll just tell you a little bit more uh, background of, uh, you know, I was talking about the violence of three cups of tea uh, as a book as a narrative as an imperial project and to any uh, astute observer of the region uh, they knew that greg mortensen uh, was was more than just a development worker or more than just a humanitarian hero um and my work was really focused on uh, pakistani state making from the start but right At the end of my fieldwork comes this book, Three Cups of Tea, which is situated on Gilgit Baltistan, but is a classic white knight fantasy of uh, humanitarian heroes saving Muslim lands from themselves, filled with um, uh, generalizations, Islamophobic, racist narratives about uh, poverty and extremism in Muslim lands and how these... uh, uh, you know, American humanitarianism will basically save us. So it was a very hearts and minds project. It was a counterinsurgency project, and it was very clear because the book had so much uh, false uh, evidence uh, that that I mean, I was just surprised that anyone would take it seriously. But the next thing you know, it's 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 a global sensation. It has children's versions. It's a New York Times bestseller. So in this chapter, I ask. How do representations of Gilgit-Baltistan go from you know, national discourse on how it's a land of beauty uh, to international discourse on how it's a space of terror, right? And it was really shocking to my interlocutors in Gilgit-Baltistan as well. In fact, some of them were going to file a lawsuit against Mortensen. Why is he portraying the region as Taliban central? Others took advantage of the publicity and started a three cups of tea mountain tour Uh, You know, as these, as these dynamics um, uh, unfold. But my major interest was connecting the delusional state, the delusional imperial state of the US and Pakistan, you know, which are again co linked entities. Uh, The Pakistani state has delusional practices of surveillance and militarism because the US state uh, has also perpetuated that around the world and centrally through Pakistan as a Cold War ally how that connection operates in the realm of representation. And imperial humanitarianism was something that was not visible uh, behind this discourse on how books are the answer to bombs, how education is being spread by Greg Mortensen in Gilgit-Baltistan. So it was a very nice tale. It was a very sophisticated tale of savior humanitarianism, and it was Pitching an American humanitarian idol against uh, poor Muslims who are sort of waiting to be saved uh, from illiteracy and extremism, because if you had schools, only if Greg Mortensen would give us schools, there would be no terrorism in Gilgit-Baltistan. That was the simplistic argument that actually, ironically, completely erased how uh, Gilgit-Baltistan is otherwise known as um, as a space where of of success in schooling actually it's a highly literate place and uh, uh, while society has been sectarianized as i talk about in the book it is it is a shia majority area and uh, and a very secular notion of progressive politics is also uh, widespread in the area which i detail in the book uh, and so i was also challenging this way of imperial humanitarianism to reduce muslim regions only to religious identity as if, you know, the moment you talk about Muslims, you have to think about, um you have to reduce them to uh only extremists or only poverty. And, you know, I was challenging this narrative of poverty, extremism, development and terrorism that was being um, thrown upon this region. Now, I will say uh, that this part of the book has been so difficult to uh, go through reviewers because they could not understand why I am talking about U.S. empire. You know, why could I not just talk about gilgit baltistan And I think it's very important in the Kashmir conflict, when one is talking about Pakistan, to actually centrally focus on how conflicts are perpetuated through imperial histories and continuing politics of representation.
1: In a very fascinating conclusion um, to the book uh, that you titled The Great Media Game, uh, you sort of talk about ways in which the region of Kilgat, baltistan is, you know, sandwiched into these multiple sort of media narratives to do with state uh, sort of uh, projects of um, showing particular kinds of representations of the region with, sort of from Pakistan and India and China and the U.S. and so on. Um, And of course, you show that in the book, what you've accomplished is to sort of uh, shift the camera of um, analysis from the state representations to uh, the people of the region and their aspirations, anxieties, desires, and so on. There was one moment in the conclusion that I found particularly poignant. um, And perhaps uh, we could end uh, this part of our conversation with you commenting on this uh, aspect of your argument. Uh, You say on page 260, right towards the end of the book. Ultimately, the multi layered ethnographic analysis of state making in this book reveals the state not only as a coherent structure of legibility and integration, but also as an unwieldy assemblage that operates through illegibility, disintegration, and emotional regulation. Rule here is accomplished through the cultivation of erasure and ambiguity, divisiveness and manipulation, and emotions like loyalty and suspicion that simultaneously produce consent, coercion, Concealment and conflict. Uh, so those uh, wonderfully um, um, uh, presented a couple of sentences really uh, grasped my attention. I wanted you to comment a bit on this part of this this interesting tension that we see throughout this book. Uh, the very coherence of the state making uh, project, announcing its incoherence, its illegibility, etc. Uh, could you speak a bit about this part of uh, the conceptual uh, argument?
0: I'm so glad you quoted those lines because I think it's easier to, well, it was hard to write them, but I think you've captured well uh, this tension between, you know, how a region is managed through uh, apparently contradictory politics. So you have on the one hand um, a place that is ecologically being uh, Included in national discourse, a place that, uh, has these grand, uh, CPEC visions and Karakoram Highway and all kinds of development interventions, um, that claim, uh, to, to make the space, to, to make the space legible on the ground. And yet the larger politics of the region, region remains illegible, remains, um, uh, Worked out through a logic of coercion and and concealment, and I think uh, I hope that one of the things that the book does is is counter this erasure uh, the erasure of the region in the national imaginary, but also the erasure of the region in contributing to larger discourses on Pakistan, whether they are on religion, whether they are on development, whether they are on militarization. my intent of uh writing this book is to call out the multiple delusional states that have uh, that continue to operate in in south asia and and of course the us itself uh, as the quintessential delusional state which i start the book with um so these relational dynamics of power uh hopefully uh, uh the book is a contribution to understanding larger understandings of, larger conversations on power and resistance, and not just the Pakistani state in Gilgit-Baltistan.
1: As we're coming to the end of our time, Nausheen, could you share a bit with our listeners uh, what you're thinking of as uh, the next uh, project or what you're working on these days?
0: Um, Yeah, sure. My work is on two themes. One is poetry, and the other is ecology. And I have Gilgit-Baltistan to thank uh, as as you have read and spent the time to investigate, uh, I have a chapter on uh, the poetics uh, of resistance in Gilgit-Baltistan and a chapter on ecological resistance in Gilgit-Baltistan in the book. And in my current work, I am looking at poetic social worlds in South Asia, both historically and in, in contemporary times. And I'm looking at how... Shared local traditions of poetry, how they help us reimagine reimagine Muslim history but also South Asian history so that's one very ambitious large uh, project the other is is looking at uh, creating an ecological sanctuary in Sindh. I am into indigenous seeds and um, and uh, ecological learning I've been teaching environmental education for the last two years in Karachi so Instead of just resisting the state and and talking about what international agendas are, we are very aware that uh, ecology is something that we must try to enact on the ground as well. Alternative ecologies, if you like. So the book project that I'm working on is uh, tentatively titled "Seed as Sanctuary: Feminist Ecology and New Social Futures." So that's another ambitious project, uh, which is uh, which is kind of a a feminist, poetic and ecological meditation on nature as a zone for witnessing and on ecological struggle on the ground.
1: Delusional States, Feeling, Rule and Development in Pakistan's Northern Frontier by Professor Nausheen Ali, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Uh, Thank you so much, Nausheen, for the generosity of your time for giving us such an excellent and thought-provoking book that I'm sure will be discussed and debated for many years. I'm sure our listeners really benefited from this conversation as they will by reading the book. So thank you so much for being on New Books in Islamic Studies.
0: Thank you. Thank you. This is really, really fun and difficult, but great fun.